If you have not already, let's go ahead and turn in our copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 3 as we continue to take the month of July and just considering these first five psalms, having looked at Psalm 1 and 2 already, and so this morning we consider Psalm 3. Would you join with me in praying as we just sung really a prayer that God would speak to us? That is what we're doing as we have his word open before us. So let's look to him in the aid of his spirit. Our God and our Father, we come in faith and we come rejoicing to know that you have spoken, that you have not hidden yourself from us, but even as we awoke this morning that the heavens declare your glory, and even as we gather this morning and have your word before us that you speak with such precision and clarity, that you reveal to us not only your great glory and power and divine attributes, but as we consider your word that you reveal to us your Son, our sin, and the atonement that you bring through the work of salvation. Lord, we pray and we ask that as we consider these words before us, this psalm of David, that we would have great clarity into understanding the purpose and the meaning of the text, but that we would not be content with mere academic or study of the, of the intellect, but Lord, would you cause your spirit to take these words, which is your living word, and that you would breathe life into our, our mortal bodies, inhabited by immortal souls. Lord, would you cause us to see with great clarity the world that we live in and yet the great hope that we are given in Christ. We ask that you would cause these words, your words, to strengthen our faith, even in days of adversity or trial, that you would give us great hope even in the midst of of darkness and overwhelmingly challenging circumstances. Lord, we pray above all that we would see the triumph and the victory of Christ that we've sung this morning defeating death, atoning for sin, rising from the grave, seated at the right hand of you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, bear us up as your people. Gather this morning, your people. Call us to yourself. And even those that, Lord, do not yet know you, would you, by the miracle and the work of your own spirit and causing dead things to become alive, would you bring saving faith even this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2, we were introduced to a number of foundational and really important matters that fill out the rest of the Psalter and really much of our scriptures. We were introduced to the blessed man and the way of the righteous. And these psalms speak of living under the righteous rule of King Jesus, both in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, this king that the Father has set upon his holy hill. And while you read Psalm 1 and you read Psalm 2 and you come to the conclusion that this way, the way of the righteous, the way of meditating upon God's word is most certainly the blessed way, we should not conclude that it is a way free of conflict or free from adversity. That would be a very shallow reading and to completely misunderstand the context of what is given to us here in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. What we recognize is that living, under, living as the people of God under the reign of King Jesus, it does not remove from us affliction or even the bitter hatred of other people. In fact, what we read here in Psalm 3 is that his followers are often exposed to greater trial and opposition as the nations rage 
against the Lord and his anointed. This is why the Psalms hold such tremendous comfort and such great help for God's people in the midst of this hostile world that we live in. Maybe you've heard or read these Psalms have been referred to as the anatomy of the soul. And by that, what the author meant is that there is not an emotion which anyone can experience that is not here represented as in a mirror. And you come to the Psalms, what you find is the language to fill your mouth and to direct your heart as we encounter grief and suffering, as we encounter the pain of sin and the joy of forgiveness, and and ultimately, as we find our great confidence in God. The psalmist in Psalm 66, verse 16, he invites us, he says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. That really encapsulates much of what the Psalter is. Us coming and hearing what God does for the souls of men. What he does for his people, most specifically. And so in that way, the Psalms serve to enrich God's people as we hear again this morning the testimony of what God has done. And here we are with Psalm 3 before us. So if you wanted to paint one title over this psalm or one big idea that you could Right in your margin, what is Psalm 3 about? Why are we considering it this morning? In part, Psalm 3 prepares the people of God to live in a hostile world by finding confidence in the Lord alone. This psalm prepares you, Christian, to live in a hostile world so that you might put your confidence in the Lord alone. The way that we're going to walk through this is in a series of three sections as the psalmist lays out the troubles that he is facing, and then secondly, the testimony that he gives, and lastly, the triumph that we are assured of. Let's look back at verse 1 as he outlines these troubles that he's facing. What we read there is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Notice that there's a bit of context that we're given in this psalm by way of a title. It's the first psalm with a title, and it simply tells us, perhaps in smaller script, in all caps, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, this is the first of 14 psalms that are linked to historical moments within the life of David. And as you read through the Psalter, you may at times skip over these, unsure of what they are, why they're in some psalms, and why they're not. But the title written here, as it is in most of our versions, in smaller print, perhaps in all caps, are a part of the canonical text of the Hebrew Scriptures. Meaning, when you read these titles... Don't just think of them as kind of the amended study notes of of a help or a study Bible or an editor who inserted this in here in a modern translation. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Psalm 20, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, we find a psalm that David wrote within the context of 2 Samuel 22. And in 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, given to us by the Holy Spirit, it notes, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
And so we would read verse 1 of chapter 22 and say, thus say the Lord. This is scripture. Interestingly, when you come to Psalm 18, which this, as the Psalter is, includes this Psalm of David, you have a title at the top of Psalm 18, which reads, To the choir master, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So my point by just passing comment is that as you read these titles within the various Psalms, read them as Holy Scripture, not passing over them as just fleeting thoughts, but given to us by God for specific Psalms in his wisdom to anchor some particular context in which we read. And so from this particular title, what do we learn? We find that this was written and given within the dark and the painful experience of when David was betrayed by his son Absalom, which you can read in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. What you read as you skim through those passages is that while David was focused upon the affairs of the kingdom, his son Absalom stole the hearts of the people. This was a four-year process where he would strategically place himself in intersections of the city and listen to people, hear their grief, commiserate with them, and say things like, ah, if only I was the king, if there was only something I could do for you. And over four years of planting these seeds, we're told that that four-year subversive plot suddenly came to this great head, this great revolt that was so unexpected and so abrupt that David was forced to flee from Jerusalem with just a few band of faithful followers. What scripture says is that he descended down the steep bank of the city, crossed over the Kidron Valley, went up to the Mount of Olives, and that he did so weeping, barefoot, with his head covered. And to make matters worse, as David fled the city, He was loudly and he was brazenly cursed by this man Shimei, who was a Benjamite, still loyal to the house of Saul. And as David fled, Shimei said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. This trouble of Psalm 3 is exactly this. And notice what David describes down in verses 1 and 2. That these troubles, they're numerous. Did you notice the repeated word many? Verse 1, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And then the next verse, many are saying of my soul, This is not one obscure person that you met in the supermarket in some obscure day. Many are in unison rising against me. So notice that these troubles are quite adversarial. Because in verse 1 it says, many are rising against me. And these troubles more specifically are accusatorial. In verse 2, regarding the state of his soul, there is no salvation for him and God. God has damned you. God has abandoned you. God has cursed you. Now, keep in mind 
this is more than just the typical personality, personality clash of, of two different peoples or even just a political party fight that we might hear in our news today. David was in the unique position of being on the throne of Israel by the direct revelation and direct authority of God. Do you remember God came to the prophet Nathan and spoke to him and said, that's the one. That's my king. Anoint him. And through Nathan, the prophet who speaks for God, announces this is God's will for God's people, David sits on the throne by the very authority and revelation of God. That is a unique place in and of itself. So what this means then is that to usurp the authority of David who sits upon that throne was more than just a political scuffle. This was to go against the authority and the direct revelation of God. This is a big deal. And while these particular circumstances, they are most definitely unique to David himself, what we can say as God's people is that the experience of trouble and affliction, they are not unique. Christ himself would know the sting of betrayal and the overwhelming reality of rising foes coming against him. He would know the full strength of opposition and satanic hatred against him. Brothers and sisters, as his followers, we should not be surprised when we taste some of that same bitterness. What did Christ teach in John 15? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. Meaning if we follow the King Jesus and the King himself experience such rejection, trial, mocking, hatred, we should not expect anything different from ourselves. The Apostle Peter picking up on the same theme of suffering and affliction in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. Why does he say that? Because how often are we surprised when we encounter even just a small portion of some sort of opposition, affliction, or trial? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what are we saying? What we're saying is this. Because of the rebellion of Satan and because of the persistent influence and corruption of sin, Trouble and affliction will often darken the days of God's people. So what do we do? Where are we to look for help? Well, in part, we're to meant, meant to look here at verse 3. Let's listen to the testimony that David gives. After describing this trouble, he simply testifies in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. 
I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Here's his testimony. First of all, notice that it's a testimony of contrast. Set off against these accusations of verses 1 and 2, David says, but you, O Lord. This is true. Many rise against me. Many say of him, there's no help for you. But you, O Lord. It's a testimony of contrast. Do you see what David does here? How helpful this is for us as God's people. Do you see the counterbalance that is set over and against all of his affliction and all that it weighs? He puts that on the scale, and then he says, but you, O Lord. In comparison to all of this that is most certainly true and most certainly painful, but you, O Lord. Who God is is set over and against his circumstance. How much we need to hear that and be reminded of that. Because we are a people who are prone to take our circumstance and let it define who God is. We take our circumstance and define who we are. But what we learn from the psalmist and all of scripture is that the Christian, the disciple of Christ, is one who looks at circumstance but then says, but you, O Lord. And weighs the reality of that circumstance against the facts of who God is. What has he done? This testimony that David gives is a testimony of contrast. And what does he say specifically? Who is this Lord? Who is the Lord that counterbalances all the reality of this trouble? He says, first of all, the Lord is a shield. A shield is required for protection when you are under the attack of your enemy. Without a shield, you are pierced through by arrows. You are beaten. You are, you are bludgeoned by the blows of the enemy. But a shield covers you. A shield defends you, protecting you, even absorbing the blows that would damage you. And even sweeter. Did you notice what David said? He doesn't say God has provided a shield. He doesn't say God teaches me how to live my life as a shield. He says, the Lord is a shield about me. Because he stands between the believer and all that would wound or destroy him. Think of that. Everything that God is stand between us and our affliction. The Lord is a shield. Surely, we have a wonderful gospel picture right here. We are all promised that the Lord will encircle his people as a shield on all sides, protecting them from attack. How wonderful it is, how needed it is to hear this melody of these gospel notes that the Lord is a shield. Why? Because he gives himself for his people to preserve and to protect his people. A Christian endures Not because he has mastered the power of positive thinking or because he grinds it out day after day when everybody else is lazy. A Christian preserves. A Christian endures because the Lord himself is the daily provision for all their needs. The Lord is a shield. And he says not only in this testimony, he is my glory. 
To say that the Lord is David's glory means that all that is praiseworthy about David, everything that wins David honor, anything that's of real value or even his great purpose is the Lord. Rather than David saying, it's my intelligence, my skill on the battlefield, my ability with the sling, my boldness in battle that wins me my reputation, he says, the Lord is my glory. When the Lord is your glory, what that means then, your worth, your value, what is truest about you, is not found in the accusation or the slander of others, but it is found in what the Lord himself says about you. To say that the Lord is your glory is to say my worth is in him. And again, how greatly we need to hear that, especially in the face of trouble, affliction, slander, and accusation. The Lord is a shield. The Lord is my glory. He also testifies that the Lord is the lifter of my head. And what a graphic picture these words paint, because you can see them in your own mind, can't you? When a person is overwhelmed, when they're cast down, when they're dejected, their posture mirrors the, the state of their soul. Their shoulders drop. Their chin hits their chest. It is this expression that testifies to what is really going on. You don't have to ask how they're doing, because this downcast soul is expressed by a downcast posture. And yet David says, the Lord is the lifter of my head. What's happening here? Well, just as that posture reveals something of the soul, it definitely reveals something of how we're trying to make our way through this life. Because when your head is cast down, what are you fixated upon? Yourself, your own circumstance, your own failure, your own heart, your own sin, and not the Lord. And the Lord comes and says, look up. He lifts my head. The posture does the opposite. Instead of this, it's this. The Lord is the lifter of my head. And when the Lord comes to lift up David's head, he is doing something of, of utmost importance with his soul. And perhaps the very thing that he needs to do in your soul this morning, he lifts up the head of the downcast. Because when your head is cast down, you are fixated upon all the wrong things and none of the one thing that will actually resolve this affliction. But what God seeks to do amidst such dark times is to ensure that the focus of our attention is away from ourselves and our circumstances and upon him and his worth. And as long as you are preoccupied with yourself, as long as you are preoccupied with your circumstance, there is little hope for you. But what the scriptures proclaim is that hope is restored and in confidence is, is infused in the life of the believer when we find the Lord to be all that he is. And we are reminded that he is my shield. He is my glory. And he lifts my head. Who God is and what he does for his people is wonderfully sufficient to lift our heads even in the most painfully difficult circumstances. Circumstances are not magically removed 
erased, eroded. But the worth of who God is and the great comfort of what he has done for his people is a far greater glory than any suffering that we can endure. Your circumstances may not change. Your particular circumstances may not change this side of glory. But what you can do is join the chorus of God's people to be able to say, my God is enough, but the Lord. Yes, all of this is true, but the Lord. He is the lifter of my head. It's a testimony of contrast, but also it's a testimony of just him crying out. What I find most significant here is that David says the answer to his cry came from where? The Lord and his holy hill. This holy hill was mentioned in Psalm 2. It's worth remembering. Verse 6, it's the very hill that the father set his king upon a throne. This holy hill was the city of Zion, the place where God would dwell with his people, the place where the tabernacle and eventually the temple would be, and this entire architecture, this entire ceremony proclaimed two things. God is holy, and yet sinful man may dwell with him by the means that God has provided. My answer came from the Lord and his holy hill. Everything about this tabernacle proclaimed God is holy, yet man may know this God through the sacrifice that God provides. So do you see the significance of this answer coming to David from the holy hill, from the place of sacrifice, from the place where sin is atoned for, from the place where it is proclaimed man can have peace with God? The answer that God gives to our cry is a declaration of comfort and of grace. Look at what the sacrifice proclaims. My people are not cast out. I will dwell with them. I am for them. I'm not against them. Their sin is atoned for and their guilt is covered. That is what that holy hill proclaims. The answer that comes from this hill is wonderfully and sufficient for us in the midst of our tribulation. So much so that we have this testimony in verses 5 and 6. It's a testimony of contentment. A testimony of contentment. I lay down and slept, (laughs) and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. How greatly our sleep, or really our lack of sleep, reveals about the condition of our soul probably more often than we like to admit, doesn't it? A child is afraid of the dark, unable to sleep. Our minds race from the cares of the day, giving us restless nights, and sleep just seems to elude us. Perhaps maybe in a different vein, the night night watchman, he, he must stay asleep. He cannot sleep because if he falls asleep, the enemy can overtake him. But here, David says... In the midst of many foes, in the midst of the wilderness, exposed to all manner of attack, he lay down and slept. And he woke again because the Lord sustained him for one good reason. The Lord sustained me. Yeah, he had great reason to fear because, as it says in verse 6, there are thousands of people surrounding him. There are thousands of people literally hunting him, setting themselves against him. 
And the simple testimony of this well-rested man, as he awakes the next morning, he says, the Lord sustained me. I was able to lay down and sleep right here. And I awoke again this morning. The Lord sustained me. He's my shield. He's my glory. He's the lifter of my head. Now, if you were to sit down with David that morning in the wilderness, you would be dumbfounded by your conversation, wouldn't you? David, can you see all the multitudes pressing in around us on those hills? Yeah. Do you see the crowd? It's not getting smaller, David. It's actually amassing more people. This mob is growing against you. Do you see that? Yeah. David, do you hear the cursing, the outright rejection, the hatred that they have of you? Yes. And I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord sustains me. He is my shield. He is my glory. He's the lifter of my head. That is the testimony of someone in the midst of severe trouble, yet seeing the Lord is sufficient for him in the midst of that. So let me just ask you, are you aware of what you have in God? Are you aware of what he has provided for you? And more specifically, when trouble comes, where do you turn? This is the testimony of one man. What is your testimony? We probably all would agree, none of us are free from affliction and trouble. But the more important question is, where do we turn in the midst of that? I think adversity can often be a wonderful gift from God because God uses our adversity to expose our confidence. I may say with my mouth that I trust the Lord, but how often does adversity expose my false saviors? Where do you turn for comfort amidst your troubles? Think back over your life in this recent season, this week, or Many months, do you see examples of self-medicating? Do you see examples of when things fall apart, you begin to rage out against those around you? Perhaps it's just work more. If we have more money, this will solve all the world's problems, and so I'm going to work more. Or perhaps it's just isolating yourself against fellow church members or your own family. When trouble hits, where do we turn? The nature of true faith and the mark of mature discipleship is to repent of these false saviors and to draw near to God, especially when circumstances would seek to drive you from him. That is what it means to be a Christian. And that is how we encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we exhort one another to press on, to remind one another of, but the Lord, don't forget who the Lord is Do you remember what he has done? Let me tell you of my soul, of what he has done for me. And we exhort one another in the way. Following Jesus means that what we know of the Lord becomes the greater weight than what we feel in our circumstance. Understanding who God is and what he has done is our great comfort in in all of our troubles and our afflictions. He's our glory and our shame and the lifter of our head. There are these 
troubles that are described, the testimony that's given, but let's look lastly at verses 7 and 8. The triumph that is assured. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It's interesting that the language of these closing verses is actually a war cry. It's a shout of triumph. In Numbers chapter 10, we're told that when the tribes of Levi broke camp, they did so because the cloud, the presence of the Lord, moved from them and they knew it was time to move on. And that repetitive cycle, every time that they would set up camp or break camp and move, it was bookended by the same liturgy, the same thing that Moses would say. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of Israel. And what does David say? Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. This is a testimony that says triumph is assured. David closes this psalm with a victorious call to battle. This is not a call just for survival. This is a call of triumphant faith. For one, it's a triumph over enemies. In part, these two verses, verses 7 and 8, are a reminder to us of the blunt reality of Psalm 1 and 2. Do you remember the blunt reality that is there? There are two ways set before every single one of us, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. This is kind of the the footnote to that, reminding us again of the blunt reality of the way of the wicked. What this means is that there are those who have, according to Scripture and probably our own personal experience, set themselves against God and his Son. As we said last week, it's the default condition of every person born on this planet. You are a natural citizen to that country that rages against God and his anointed. And the psalmist fill out more in the Psalter just what it means to describe wickedness and enemies. They're called enemies, they're called wicked because they describe themselves as practical atheists. They are proud and they arrogantly set themselves against God. They refuse to believe that God will actually do anything and they can live as they please. King Jesus may be on his hill, but I reject his authority. I want nothing to do with him. I will live as I please. Psalm 10. The pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. This is who David is speaking of. David sees these adversaries as some roaring beast that seek to devour God's people with their sharp teeth, but the Lord strikes them on the cheek and he breaks the very teeth that would shred God's people. It's a victory over enemies. Now, let me just say something. Keep in mind, this language of adversaries to God and the danger to God's people and sharp teeth This really describes what the majority of God's people have endured through much of church history. Now, our immediate context here in Placer County 
In our immediate context of the last 250 years in which we live, doesn't bear much of that out. But please remember, we are the minority in our experience, not the majority. Most of God's people, through much of church history, have experienced exactly what David is experiencing in a very real and tangible way. From David in the wilderness to the wild beasts tearing apart Christians in Roman Colosseums to beheading of Christian disciples in Middle Eastern churches today, God's people have always known some assault of wickedness as the nations rage against King Jesus. In our counter-refrain to all of this is, God's people can sing in triumph, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. God's people are under trouble and affliction because they know, and they know in that, that this trouble and affliction, this evil, will not prevail in the midst of it. Evil and wickedness will be cast down, and it will be scattered. It's a triumph over evil, but most importantly, it is a triumph of the Lord. That's the clarification of verse 8. It's not rise up, take your sword, and smite down all the enemies of the Lord. Few have tried that. What it says is salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Verse 8, notice, is set in contrast to the mocking assault of verse 2. Many say of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. And what's the closing refrain? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The triumphant cry of David is that God's people will not merely survive. They will triumph only because their salvation comes by the hands of Yahweh, the Lord himself. And this is the clear and this is the unashamed message of Scripture. Salvation is of the Lord. And most importantly, what scriptures proclaim is that the most important thing, the most deadly thing that would ever bury you, the most specific thing that would ever ultimately damn you, is not your circumstances. It's not somebody else. It is your sin itself. And yet at the same time, the, the scriptures declare salvation is of the Lord. Salvation even from that is what the Lord provides. This is the clear and unashamed message of Scripture. You have an enemy, you have sin, and yet the Lord is victor. Christ is greater still. We can have confidence as God's people that only because of this, this substance of who this psalm points to, David's greater son, that then we can know something of hope in the midst of affliction. Because Christ knew the sting of betrayal. Christ knew the shame of arrest, the pain of beating, and ultimately crucifixion. And he did all of this, crying out to God, but unlike David, he got no answer. The father was silent. David would write Psalm 22, but that would be fulfilled and most graphically portrayed upon the lips of Christ. Do you know Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And then verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see, our great confidence in the face of our own sin and the pain of adversity is that Christ has gone before us. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the captain of our salvation. For this anointed king, he actually gives his life for his subjects. He dies so that his people will live, so that this blessing of the Lord might truly be upon his people, as it says in verse 8. The Christian, then, is one who not only survives these many dangers, toils, and snares, but is also the victor because salvation belongs to the Lord. In this life, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for he, Christ, the King, has overcome the world. Our greatest deliverance, what it does is it gives us confidence in our daily opposition. If the Lord will save his people from their sin, how much more so will he deliver us in every other danger, toil, and snare? Does any of this sound familiar to you? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by sinful flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. And he goes on. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all the day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 3 prepares the people of God to live in a hostile world and know the forgiveness of sin, placing their full confidence in the Lord so that God's people with one voice can say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Father, we ask and we pray that that one declaration would be 
not only the truth that unifies us as your people, but would be the great comfort in the midst of our trouble and affliction. Lord, we pray that you would help us because we are weak, forgetful, and foolish. So often we try and make sense of our world through our particular circumstances, forgetting you. Father, we pray that you would help us to know more of who you are. That like the blessed man, we would find ourselves meditating upon the scriptures that we might be able to say with David, but you, O Lord. That we would know you to be our shield, that we would know you to be our glory, and that we would know you to be the one who lifts our head. Father, we receive gladly and by faith the answer that comes from your holy hill, that your son is sufficient not only to atone for our sins, but to preserve and to protect us, to ultimately deliver us from Satan and death itself, having taken the sting of sin, which is the law, satisfying that perfectly in his own righteous life and sacrificial death. Lord, bolster us in our faith. Regardless of what may come in future days, we long to be those, along with the rest of your people, who can say in all confidence that ultimately our hope is in you. Father, we ask that you would do this work by your spirit, for the good of your church and for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.